Herman Webster Mudgett, better known as H.H. H. Holmes. He was a con artist, a ladies' man, a bigamist, and perhaps America's first serial killer. Sometimes he's referred to as the Beast of Chicago. Holmes is believed to have killed somewhere between 20 and 200 victims. Many of those lost souls met their demise in a specially designed House of Horrors, later nicknamed the Murder Castle of Chicago. Some even speculate he could have been the same person as the infamous Jack the Ripper. At the very least, he was America's version. Apprehended in 1894, he was hanged for crimes two years later, but not before a bloodbath that he released across the Midwest. Join us tonight as we take you on a personal tour of this Dr. Death and yet another tale of nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. When you're going to tell a story, you start at the beginning, right? Absolutely. May 16th, 1861, Henry Herman Webster Mudgett is born, That's in, a mouthful. That's a big born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, to uh, parents of privilege. Mm-hmm. Parents were Levi Horton and Theodate. And I'm going to say this, Theodate. I think that's the way you would pronounce Theodate it. Theodate Page. Um, both descended from the first English immigrants in their area. He was the third child born to a family of devout Methodists. Yeah, I had down um, his mother, a devout Methodist, would often quote the children, of course, including him, uh, and lecture with Bible scriptures. A pretty pretty stern uh, household, but I also had that his father was an alcoholic, yeah. which kind of added to a little bit of the turmoil of early child life. I think before we, we get too much further, let, let's touch on one of the things that you and I talked about before we were talking about. Uh, there was a practice back in these days that they called yellow journalism, mm-hmm. which tended to inflate or exaggerate the cases as they could be. Not unlike what we do today. Yeah, you, you said, <laughs> you know, 20 to 200 potential victims. That's, yeah, that seemed very big. Um, it was brought to my understanding that they touched on his early life and people tried to attribute uh, some of the things that, that later lead you know, fragile minds to the kind of evil that he eventually partakes in. Uh, you know, an alcoholic father, an overbearing mother. Mm-hmm. So so I think we need to take any any of this story needs to kind of be taken with a grain of salt besides some of the, the key facts. So I, I just kind of want to drop that well, in there. And it's very similar, different, but the whole deal of Jesse James. My gosh, if he robbed every bank that he was acclaimed no, yeah, yeah, to yeah, have yeah. done, that, that guy must have been traveling at Mach 3, so, you know. But yeah, good point. Uh, I had down that he was bullied by children as a child himself. Uh, at one point, he, he seemed to develop an absolute fear of skeletons in particular. Well, that's ironic. Uh, really? There was a, Considering what happens well, What later. he actually does. <laughs> there was a local doctor's office that the kids locked him inside of that had one of these freestanding skeletons used, Those you know. Anatomy lessons. Anatomy skeletons. lessons, but locked him in this room. And I think that may have been the straw that broke the camel's back, <laughs> if you will. He he confronted 
his ultimate fear and shall we say embraced it. At the age of 16, he graduated from the Phillips Exeter Academy uh, and he took teaching jobs in the Gilmanton area and, and later nearby Alton. July 4th, 1878, he marries Clara Lovering in Alton and he has a son named Robert born on February 3rd, 1880. Again, very young age, yep. you know, 17-ish at that time. But he's, he's clearly a very smart, very bright young man. He enrolls in the University of Vermont in Burlington at the age of 18, uh, but becomes dissatisfied with the school, and he ends up leaving after one year. In 1882, he enters the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery, where he graduates in June of 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled there, he worked with the anatomy lab professor Herdman, who was the chief anatomy instructor. So maybe kind of start to overcome those childhood fears at that point. Yeah, I think that may have added fuel to the fire. He had apprenticed in New Hampshire under, and this is a name I'm probably going to get wrong, but Nahum White, who was a noted advocate of human dissection, which, again, as we delve deeper into the story, you're going to find out how that connection works. Now, did you come across, while he was at the college, there were several corpses that were stolen from the medical department? Allegedly. Allegedly. Allegedly, he used corpses, and used, but he also used corpses to make false insurance claims. I read that, that as well. That seems to be a, a common that thing That comes back, yes. But he had some also, he was accused of, uh, almost didn't graduate because of something about uh, a widowed hairdresser accusing him of making false promise to marry her. Now, he's already married. Oh, that doesn't stop him. Oh, yeah. Trust me. Again, that's a repeat. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, this guy's something else. His housemates at the time did describe him as uh, being very violent towards Clara. Um, so he obviously wasn't a good person to any, any, you know, any stretch of the imagination. Uh, total bigamist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not a good person. And later in 1884, just before his graduation, she moves back to New Hampshire uh, and, and wrote in, in later correspondence that she felt that she really knew very little of him. Uh, young love marriage. Yeah. <laughs> So later, he moves to Moore's Fork, New York, when rumors follow him that he uh, has, had, at that point in time, he'd been seen with a little boy who later disappears. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he claims the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. Well, of course he you know, does. Why this boy's traveling alone, who yeah, knows? Right. No investigation takes place, and home eventually skips town. Because, again, he's already establishing himself in society as a good person, but that is definitely a mask. Yeah. No, and, and, and that, that does become a kind of a recurring thing. He tries to be a good uh, member of society. He tries to fit in. He tries to be this regular guy, but no. Which actually just opens more doors for him. So so he later goes to Philadelphia, where he gets a job uh, as a keeper in, in, at the Norristown State Hospital. But he quits that after just a few days. Apparently that wasn't a good fit. And he later takes a position at a drugstore in Philly. I love this, yeah. And while working there, there, a young boy dies after taking medicine that was prescribed at the store. And, of course, Mr. Holmes denies any involvement in the yep, child's don't death. Don't know what you're talking about. And then skips town. Yeah. So, um, and this, again, a lot of repeats. Yeah. There's another pharmacy yeah. that comes up here. Now, right before moving to Chicago, he changes his name to Henry Howard Holmes. Now, why, would you, Holmes. why would you change your name? Well, I mean, it just sounds better, right? Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> it couldn't be an attempt to hide his identity <laughs> in any way. But I do make a note here that it's possibly to avoid being exposed to the uh, by the victims of previous scams. Yes, exactly. He, like you said, he's a con artist, a swindler, a trickster, if you will. In 1886, while still married to Clara, he marries a Myrtle Belknap in Minneapolis. Uh, he did file for divorce from Clara a few weeks later, 
And they had a daughter together, I believe. Uh, Lucy Theodote. Theodote Holmes? Yep. yep. He tries to, to leave Claire on the... Uh, he alleges infidelity on her part, but those claims could not be proven. Um, and there's surviving paperwork that indicates that she may never have been informed of the intended divorce. <laughs> and yes, they do have a, a, a daughter, Lucy Theodate Holmes, uh, born on July 4th, 1889. Uh, and she's born in Inglewood in Chicago, Illinois, where uh, later Holmes would live with Murda and Lucy at Willamette, Illinois. But while there, he would spend most of his time in Chicago. And then even later on, he would eventually marry a Georgiana Yoke in Denver while still married to both Clara and Murda. Yeah. But that that's later in the story. So now we're, we're here. We're in Illinois. We're in Chicago. I, I love this aspect. Uh, th- this is, you really start understanding the man here. He gets a job, once again, at a pharmacy, uh, a very, you know, prestigious uh, area, Chicago. This is the main area where the World's Fair will literally be held yeah. just blocks from. Um, he befriends this, uh, from what I understand, it was an older couple. Um, he starts working there, and uh, just kind of strangely, the, the older man passes mysteriously and hey, hey. allegedly allegedly thank you thank you for keeping that straight allegedly <laughs> allegedly holmes there was never any proof to say that holmes was involved but then allegedly the wife the widow holmes convinces to sell the pharmacy business from her to him at a fraction of the cost of the value and very shortly after she passes away uh, what's they got to do with holmes he basically inherits the pharmacy. Well, but I mean, are you trying to say he was part of, like... Allegedly. Did, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this allegedly line, I did steal that from another podcast I listened to, but I think in cases <laughs> where we're going to accuse people of murder, it works really well. Yes, yes, allegedly. Allegedly, he may have killed both of those people that own the, and, the drugstore. And he's really setting up his castle here, literally. The the murder castle would be right across the yeah, street say, from this he, pharmacy. he purchases the empty lot across the street. So here this dude is... He's come in, allegedly, and knocked out the, the former owners, got the pharmacy business at a fraction of the cost, and got them out of the way. Now he can literally look out the front windows and watch the construction of what would become the murder hotel. Like we said, he buys the empty lot across the street, and he begins construction in 1887 on uh, a two-story, what they call, mixed-use building. We're gonna oh, be it's a- mixed-use. <laughs> We're going to get there. <laughs> Uh, there are going to be apartments on the second floor, and in the bottom floor will be retail space, including a new drugstore. Now, I had it was a three-story building. Um, Maybe that's counting the basement. Uh, okay. two Probably two floors this above is, yeah, street. definitely two floors basement. above ground and, and okay. a basement. Now, one of the weird things about this, uh, one this of the weird facility things. is that all employees, guests, uh, <laughs> I have fiancés and wives, too, <laughs> were required to have life insurance. And he would pay the premiums as long as he was listed as the sole beneficiary. As the beneficiary. So if anyone disappeared while working for him, if anyone, allegedly, allegedly, you know, he would be the one to benefit from their that death. That seems odd. Do you, have you ever worked at a place like that where they become the beneficiary if you die? You know, I've heard of the practice. Really? I, I mean, it's it's actively discouraged in modern society. <laughs> I wonder why. But I have heard of said practice. <laughs> Now, at some point in time, he declined to pay his architects or the steel company providing materials. Yes. And they sued him in 1888. And um, he filed incompetence that basically they weren't doing his job right, yeah. or their job right, so he didn't have to pay or pay a fraction okay. of what it would cost. In, in 1892, and this may be some of the confusion we had a little bit earlier, I have that he added the third floor. Ah, uh, okay. And at this point in time, he told investors and suppliers that he intended to use it as a hotel. 
And like you said, this was going to be near the World's Fair. It was being dubbed the World's Columbian Exposition at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the proper hotel was never completed. Now, also kind of going back to the whole beneficiary life insurance, I found where he had hired all kinds of people. He had a fleet of people working on this hotel. We're not talking he just had you know three or four people. As many as 20 to 30 workers every day. And he went through these people left and right. Allegedly, that's going to be the word of this podcast. He would fire them after several weeks on the job, one, to keep from having to pay them, but two, to keep the design and some of the special features uh, from ever coming to life from anybody that built the the, the establishment. When you say special features, Eric. Yes, yes. Would this be in reference to uh, some of the rooms on the second floor that included... Elaborate torture chambers? That's one. Could it? Could you be talking about the chutes that led directly to the basement where there were like autopsy rooms? Possibly peepholes that that viewed into rooms with gas pipes exposed where yeah. he could watch people suffocate and die? No. The third floor rooms? Allegedly. Some of these third floor rooms that were supposedly soundproofed? Or maybe the rack stretching machine that the police found downstairs in the basement that he said he used for medical purposes, but the weights were to a point it would literally rip a body in half? The secret crematorium in the basement. That was for glass blowing, Bill. Oh. Remember he blowing. said that. There was no oh. no proof the, of any glass acid. blowing, by the way. So what but, about the acid vats? Well, that was just, you know, to clean up some of the messes. Now, you talked about, you know, he would he would get rid of some of these builders. Get rid of you know, a lot of yeah. <laughs> a lot of these folks uh, said they had never been paid. Some of them claimed to find hidden rooms and passages mm-hmm. throughout the hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they even searched the building at one point in time, apparently, which made the news. And investors pulled out of the deal uh, when a local jeweler showed them, you know, some of the articles about what was discovered in Holmes's hotel during the whole eighteen ninety three Columbian Exposition that we now call the World's Fair. Uh, Holmes opened up this home as a hotel for visitors and hundreds and hundreds of people. Many guests did not survive. That's not allegedly. They checked uh, They checked in. But, but they, they did didn't check, check out. out uh, of this How m- old are we, Eric, that we can make that <laughs> yeah, We joke. can actually make that. Most people are like, If no what? one understands that, it's a uh, look up Roach Motel yeah, Roach commercial Motel. on YouTube. But many of these victims, no one knows for sure totally the, the number, thus that murder count of 20 to 200. A lot of them were women who he seduced, swindled, and then killed. That seems to be pretty common for this uh, guy. He was he a ladies' man. A you know, he had a habit of getting engaged to women, only uh, with the fiancés to suddenly disappear. If you look up pictures of him, it must have been the mustache. Oh, he had that great handlebar mustache Gold thing going school on. mustache. Yeah. In, in 1894, police officers inspected the hotel while Holmes was out. And during the inspection, they found rooms with hinged walls and false partitions. Rooms linked with secret passageways, airtight rooms connected to pipelines filled with gas. There were chutes that would deliver bodies straight to the basement. And down in the basement, there were surgical tables bedecked with medical tools. Allegedly. You know, and then it was claimed that he would dissect them before selling their organs and bones on the black market into medical institutions. There was actual proof in a lot of the research that I did, newspaper and medical uh, written documents, where they started connecting the dots and at this point it was much too late but like medical institutions would order as we were talking earlier the full-blown skeletons that would be for educational purposes they called them articulated skeletons articulated skeletons uh where they would purchase and it would be like a female at approximately the age (laughs) of 32 and 
hey, that matched his second wife or whatever, yeah, you know, right within age, the same week. The right age for someone Holmes yeah, might have. I believe you mentioned with. those acid vats. Yeah. You know, so it's like, hey, I don't have one now, but if you'll give me a week, I'll get you, I'll get your order filled. Shortly after Holmes is arrested, the, the hotel is uh, gutted by fire. Now, hold on. I'm going to back you up there. What about wife number three? Georgiana Yoke. She she was one of the people that come to the hotel and stayed, and they fell madly in love. But he didn't want to marry her, but he got her pregnant. And so part of the agreement was, well, I'll marry you if you allow me to perform the surgery to make said baby ah. go away. And she said, okay. I'm- and shortly thereafter, she also disappeared. Wow. Yeah, no, I didn't. Marriage certificate I didn't have any and everything. To her. Yeah, marriage certificate and everything to that one. So uh, I had that in uh, January of 1894, actually. Well, in, in 94 after his arrest, the hotel is gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist. It was later rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. And besides his uh, quote unquote murder castle, Holmes also had a one story factory that he owned in Chicago that he claimed was used for glass bending. And it is unknown if the factory furnace was used for glass bending or more nefarious purposes. <laughs> Before we, we proceed past 1894 here, I do have some exploits that I want to talk about. We, we were kind of out of the timeline here, but it's sort of, some of these are kind of hard to drop into his timeline. Yes. The dates are, a lot of, some of the dates are kind of so-so. So, um, one of his early murder victims was his mistress, Julia Smythe. Uh, she was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes's building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about their affair, he quit and moved away and left Smythe there with her daughter, Pearl. Uh, Smythe gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel and continued her relationship with Holmes. Uh, The two of them disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891. Uh, Holmes claimed that she died during an abortion. What actually happened is never 100% confirmed. Another paramour, if you will, uh, Emmeline Sagrand began working in the building of May of 1892 and disappeared that same December. A list of women just go on and on. You have an Edna Van Tassel, who was uh, believed to have been among his victims. Now, his usual murder method was suffocation, included overdoses of chloroform, overexposure to lighting gas fumes, and trapped in an airless vault. Oh, yes. Yeah, he had a vault built inside of the hotel. He also claimed that he would use starvation and burning to kill his victims. There were some accounts that he actually made this into kind of a game and a sport, yeah. that the hotel hallways were kind of labyrinth-wise, and he would open and close secret doors and passages and then run the victims down the yeah. hallway. And I mean, he was pretty sadistic. So while working in the Chemical Bank building, Holmes met and became friends with a Benjamin Peitzel. Uh, he was a carpenter with a criminal past, and Holmes would use Peitzel as his right-hand man in schemes quite often. Uh, he was later described as, quote, Holmes's tool, his creature. Kind of a... Definitely not innocent. Yeah. In, in early 1893, actress Minnie Williams moves to Chicago. He met her at an employment office and offered her a job at his hotel as a stenographer. And on April of 93, he persuaded her to transfer the deed of a property she owned in Fort Worth, Texas, to uh, Alexander Bond, who just happened to be... dun 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 H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes, nonetheless. He served his notary for the, the arrangement and then signed it over to Peitzel under the alias of Benton T. Lyman. And the very next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as husband and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park area. Her sister, Annie, came to visit in July, and she wrote back to her aunt that she planned to accompany Brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie was seen alive after July 5th, 1893. Death counts continue. 
So with insurance companies pressing in to prosecute him for arson, he he gets arrested. We said in 1894, mm-hmm. July, um, I believe. And he he leaves Chicago shortly thereafter. So I'm not sure again timeline wise what happens. And again, a lot of the stuff was based on newspaper accounts, yes. and so you know it's very easy to be a week, if not a month or so, behind. Or so later on, he reappears in Fort Worth, uh, claiming to have inherited the property from the Williams sisters that mm-hmm. he had signed over. Uh, here, once again, he attempts to build a building without paying his suppliers and contractors. And this is not a site of any additional killings at this point. And then we move into the events that happened in St. Louis in July, that same July, apparently. Uh, he is arrested and briefly jailed in St. Louis, Missouri, and promptly bailed out. However, this is where he meets Marion Hedgepath. Or Hedgepath. Hedgepath, yeah, a career criminal. Uh, who later would flip information on Holmes to you know help himself in his own predicament. Yeah. But th- the theory is together the two of them came up with a life insurance scheme to go back to his good pal, buddy, right arm, Ben Peitzel or Benjamin Peitzel, yeah. and try to defraud the insurance company by faking Peitzel's death. Uh, and to this conjunction, they purchased a $10,000 life insurance policy. Now, he went to Peitzel and told him, <laughs> hey, here's what we're doing. You're going to be a part of this. You good? And he's like, oh, yeah, totally. So I have that he and Holmes traveled to Colorado through Missouri, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and to Texas, and where they committed several other acts of fraud all along the way. Uh, Holmes remarried yet again along that time, returning to Missouri, and then Holmes was arrested yet again, but escaped. And from what I understand, it all had to do with fraudulent stuff. They were in, maybe it wasn't a courtroom, but like a police room. And they had all the, the people here, and they're all just kind of, he owes me money, he owes me money. And he just slips out the back door. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how does this happen? And he's on the run yet again. Well, well, the deal with Peitzel, unfortunately for him, I, I, I'm, I have that this all culminates in Philadelphia. He's agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect uh, $10,000 in life insurance policy. I think Holmes and the wife were going to split it yeah, or something. She was gonna, yeah, she was supposed to split it with Holmes and a Jephthah Howe. Uh, so they they get to Philadelphia. Peitzel sets himself up as an inventor under the name of B.F. Perry. The plan is that he will be killed in a lab explosion and his body so disfigured that it'll be impossible to identify. And who better to come up with an unidentified body than... Yeah, Mr. H. Holmes. H. Holmes. So Holmes is charged with finding this appropriate cadaver. Now Holmes, in the effort to find just the right body for Peitzel's body, he goes ahead and... It's not a fake death. He kills Peitzel. Yeah, yeah. Knocks him out with chloroform, he sets knows, his body on he, fire. He knows too much anyhow. It's about time to, to yeah. nip him. Yeah. So Now that leaves five children that belong to Benjamin and his wife. Uh, yes. Yep. And, and Holmes, he collects his payout, and then he begins to manipulate Peitzel's unsuspecting wife and actually takes custody of three out of their five children, leaving her with the oldest and the youngest, I believe. And I had down, I think, tries to cheat the wife because from what i understood it was supposed to have been split a little bit more evenly but he only offers her five hundred dollars <laughs> of the ten thousand what rewarded. a sleazebag yeah and let me take three of the children in off of you to help yeah. with that burden because you know while your husband's truly not dead they can go visit dad and they can go on the road with me and you know really yeah, to they- me this seems so weird you're just going to send oh, three yeah. of your five children out with maybe not a stranger, but I, I think it would be better to send them with a stranger. <laughs> yeah, apparently him and the Peitzel children, they travel throughout the northern U.S. and, and parts of Canada. 
And basically, he's escorting Mrs. Peitzel along a similar route the whole time while keeping her separated from the children. He uses various aliases during that time, and he lies to her about her husband's death. Yep. Uh, and he claimed at that point in time that Heitzel was actually hiding out in London. He continues to lie to Mrs. Peitzel about the whereabouts of her own children while he's parading them around. Uh, in Detroit, as a matter of fact, they were only a few blocks apart, and he continued to lie about their whereabouts. And he stayed there, you know, with his wife while, you know, hiding every... I mean, it's it's just crazy. This guy's... How's a man sleep at night? Uh, he would later confess to murdering two of the children by forcing them into a large trunk, locking them inside, putting a, drilling a hole through the lid, and then attaching a gas line to to that, that hose. That seemed to be a favorite, yeah. Now, Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the children, he found the decomposed bodies of the two girls in the cellar of a Toronto rental house. Uh, then he went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was there. He was reported to visit a local pharmacy, uh, where he purchased drugs that he then used to kill Howard Peitzel, which was, I guess, the last Peitzel child in his care. He'd also gone to a repair shop to sharpen knives, which he allegedly used to chop up the body before burying it. Allegedly. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the home's chimney. I have that his murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston, November 17th, 1894. He was tracked there from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons and held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas. <laughs> of all the things. Uh, yeah. He appeared poised to flee the country at this point in time in the company of his third wife. But, you know, in July 1895, when the bodies of Alice and Nellie were discovered by Detective Geyer. That's the two daughters yeah. of the Peitzels. Yep. Chicago police and reporters began investigating his home in Inglewood uh, that, of course, they referred to as the castle. There was no evidence found which could convict him in Chicago, though, apparently, where I would say most of his murders took place. And I think he was getting rid of those skeletons and using the glass-blowing yeah. furnace. According to an author named Selzer, stories of the hidden, you know, the torture equipment, the hidden rooms and all that were were greatly exaggerated after the fact, that, that he maybe had some of those, but not all, not all that he was described as having. So, in the course of all this, 20 to 200... You know, going across the country, scam after scam after scam, life insurance, fraud, and all that. In October of 1895, he's put on trial for the death of his creature, Benjamin Peitzel. Yes. The only man he's actually accused of killing at this point. He's found guilty and he's sentenced to death. So 20 to 200 murders, and it's the death of one man, his own accomplice. His right that, arm. That, that that finds him, you know, finally brings him to justice. Now, a couple things happened here during the trial that I thought was pretty interesting. First off, to, to put you in the mindset of this serial killer, he sells his story for $10,000 to the Hearst Corporation, which I believe is a magazine corporation. Yeah, I have as a newspaper company. Newspaper, magazine. So, again, why does he need $10,000 if he's sentenced to death? He's planning on somehow, again, conning and escaping. He fires his own lawyer and represents himself in court. Well, what's the expression about that, too? The man who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer. Yes, yes. And, I mean, obviously the body count, like we said, we'll, we'll never know. But a lot of the theories are now, now he's sitting in a jail cell. He's a con man. He, he's a ladies' man, and he is secluded. He's going nuts. So the belief is here, he starts inflating his own body count. He starts inflating the own stories. See, here, here, to get reporters and stuff to come in, and he's just yeah. gleaming in this. I mean, this is, yeah, he's eating his, this up. After his conviction, he confesses to 27 murders spread throughout Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. 
and some of those that he confesses to murdering are found to be still alive. Yeah, they alive. come forward and they're like, I'm, I'm not yeah, dead. No, he didn't kill me. I'm not I, dead. I'm not dead. So he gave various accounts of his own life. He uh, initially claimed innocence and then later claimed to be possessed by Satan. The devil made me do it. While writing his confession in prison, he mentions how drastically his own facial appearance had changed since becoming imprisoned. And he described a new grim appearance as, quote, gruesome and taking a satanical cast. And he wrote that he was convinced that after everything he had done, he was beginning to resemble the devil. May 7th, 1896, Holmes is hanged at uh, Philadelphia County Prison for the murder of Peitzel, the only man he was actually convicted of murdering. Yep. Uh, On his deathbed, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep, concerned that grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. Uh, Unfortunately for Holmes, when they dropped him, his neck did not immediately break, and instead he strangled slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes later. Karma? So, again, like we said earlier, the the murder castle was mysteriously gutted by fire in August of 1895. Uh, According to the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back between 8 and 9 p.m., and about a half hour later they were seen exiting the building and running away following which several explosions uh, lit up the castle and it goes up in flames. Investigators did find a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps. Uh, now, the building did survive the fire, like we said, was used until it was torn down in 1938. Now, I want, I want to touch on the, the fall from grace here. You know, we talked about how the serial killer was literally hiding in plain sight. He had this beautiful mask on and he was such a, a good representation of society. The city of Chicago actually awarded him... I don't know if it was a certificate or like the key to the city, but it was some big accomplishment for helping with the World's Fair <laughs> and taking in all the tourists and stuff from that. Um, so, I mean, he proudly hung that, they said, on his wall. And again, it's just like, wow, the man of many faces. Yeah. One last weird detail of the home story that I have here. You know, he was such a comment. He was such a, a shyster, a trickster. Uh, after he had died, some claim that, that the the weird coffin setup and all that were engineered to allow Holmes to, to fake his own death. And so, Again, going back to why do you collect $10,000 on your deathbed yeah. to sell your story? So in 2017, allegations that he had in fact escaped execution kind of came up. And so it was decided to exhume the body in Holmes's tomb for examination just to make sure this was the man, that this was in fact Holmes that had been laid to rest there. Uh, he was found not to have decomposed normally, according to the story. His clothes almost perfectly preserved, and his mustache intact. That mustache, though. Uh, that must have been the source of his power. Uh, however, the body was identified as Holmes by the teeth. So, And to add to that, another little twist. There was actually a, a TV series. I think it only lasted one season. And don't quote me on it. I want to say it was the great-grandson of H.H. H. Holmes. Uh, he was trying to make that literal connection that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. And the time frames are very close, I will say this. And one could argue, well, at that time frame, you know, it would be very easy to transpose a couple numbers and, you know, being off a week or yeah. so. But during this whole same time frame, uh, I mean, the newspapers were carrying Jack the Ripper's story while the hotel of death was, was going on. And the thought was the heat got turned up on so much in London that he escaped to, to America. 
I, I found so many conflicts with that that uh, I, I don't believe that's true. I had found the connection, but I didn't run it to ground because, again, like you said, it, it was it was it seems pretty clear that it's, that's not it's the case. A, it would be a huge stretch. But uh, as I said in the opening, uh, he may not have been Jack the Ripper, but he was definitely America's version of Jack the Ripper. So here's yet another twisted tale that you will find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.